0: This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision making, hosted by me, Chris Andrews, and my brother Nick. Today, we're throwing it back to the Good Assassination. Today, we're throwing it back to the Good Assassination, one of my favorite episodes. We're taking the holiday off to celebrate America's birthday. Happy birthday, America. Uh, Happy uh, anti British day to all who celebrate. I hope you're having a good cup of tea, knocking back a few cold ones, and enjoying some hot dogs. And we hope you kick back and relax to enjoy one of my favorite episodes that we've ever recorded. It was a really interesting look at the assassination of President William McKinley. I said then, Nick said then, and I'm going to say it again, we would never, ever advocate for assassination. But there were some positive consequences that just happened to follow on this particular assassination. It's a really interesting look back at an important historical moment in American history. I also want to Just put in a quick request with you, Player 3. You guys are always super patient with us. You're always really supportive, and we really appreciate you being here with us. And if you're listening to the show and you hadn't heard this episode before, please understand, we were very, very bad at this back then. Today, we're only very bad at this. We've made small improvements, but the show might sound a little bit different, a little bit lower quality than some of our more recent stuff. So bear with us and enjoy this show, this little historical look back at the assassination of President McKinley, and a look back at the history of this podcast. Meanwhile, I want to give you guys a quick reminder. If you haven't joined us already, download the Fable Book Club app and join us for the Game Theory Book Club. We're in our inaugural read. We're reading The Swerve by Stephen Greenblatt. It's a really interesting historical look at the discovery of an important manuscript that changed the world into the modern place that we know it to be today. We're going to be back with some new stuff after the holiday So stay safe, enjoy the show, enjoy Stephen Greenblatt's The Swerve, enjoy the book club on Fable, all that good stuff. And just as a last reminder, on average, Americans are going to have fewer fingers remaining on their hands after the holiday than they do right now. So please, be safe out there, celebrate responsibly. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America.
1: In 1899... The three most powerful men in the U.S. decided that the current U.S. president, William McKinley, would better suit their enormous appetite for wealth and power than his opponent, William Jennings Bryan. Bryan, a socialist, ran a campaign which was strictly in opposition to the status quo. He was for the worker and for the farmer. The triad of titans were reasonably terrified of Bryan. So they backed McKinley in a way that has since been made illegal. They bought the president with their preposterous pockets and platforms. But J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie, and John Rockefeller weren't only concerned about the White House, they were also concerned about the New York State House. In the same year, 1899, the current governor of New York had, at the time, emerged as a significant threat to the three titans of industry and all those who would follow in their rise to power. The governor held twice daily press conferences to stay in touch with the average citizen, to create a movement he immediately began going after massive corporations with legislation and public sentiment. He was a young, smart, popular, rising star. Although William Jennings Bryan was the immediate threat, the New York governor would be next. So they opted to deal with them both at the same time. They wanted the governor to be vice president under McKinley, where he'd have no real power and where his political aspirations would likely die out. Their plan worked perfectly. McKinley was indeed elected president of the United States and the governor was safely in Washington DC doing a whole lot of nothing. Then as conditions for the American worker got worse and worse, a former factory worker turned anarchist had had enough. On September 6th, 1901, Leon Czolgosz took the president's hand with his right hand and shot him in the chest with his left. The president underwent an operation and after making strides, died from his injuries eight days later. For Morgan, Carnegie, and Rockefeller, their plan backfired. Now, the most dangerous threat to their power was in the White House, with nothing standing between them. On September 14th, 1901, Teddy Big Stick Roosevelt was sworn in as the 26th President of the United States. And the jig, so they say, was up. welcome to episode three of game theory i am nick andrews
0: and i'm chris andrews
1: chris today we get to talk about someone that you and i have been standing over since we went to high school and that's teddy big stick roosevelt the biggest stick in all the land in all the land the biggest the stick that landed him on mount rushmore so today as we mentioned we're going to discuss how he got to the White House and the complicated array of tactical decisions that led to him being there. And that starts with what is perhaps what I've been calling the good or maybe the lucky assassination. So, Chris, let's start off by saying how important Teddy Roosevelt was for the country.
0: Well, look, Teddy Roosevelt, I think, is unique in the annals of American history. He's my personal favorite president, not necessarily because of the man's politics, Uh, In fact, a lot of people, the farther right you go, the more upset they become with Teddy Roosevelt, and the things he did, because he expanded executive power in a huge way. He single-handedly changed the character of the nation more than anybody, arguably, since like Washington. He totally ushered in a new age right at the turn of the century. He brought America onto the world stage. He changed the American story from being an up-and-coming player in an increasingly globalized world to an influential force that was ready to step into World War I and ready to lead the world in the aftermath of the events in the decades that followed. This man is the single most important president, in my opinion, that we've ever had.
1: Yeah, I mean, he he to me was sort of like America 2.0, which is fascinating because he was alive while three to six of the other most important innovators in American history, maybe you could argue up until kind of now with the internet, when they were all alive people that revolutionized and invented, like, our infrastructure, our uh, natural resources and how they're used, how we, like, our status symbols and whatnot. And I learned all of this from a documentary that is a terrible documentary, NPR, ripped to shreds. And so the documentary is called The Men Who Built America by the History Channel. And it's one of those things where, like, they repeat themselves so much. It's like a bunch of trailers on top of each other. But the information packed within it is pretty accurate and pretty good. The cast was not great. The acting wasn't great. But the, the men who built America were, in order, I believe, Cornelius Vanderbilt, the railroads. Then you have John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, uh, JP Morgan, Henry Ford, Tesla, and Edison. Those guys, like they changed everything. So what they were able to do was invent or find resources that people hadn't really figured out before, like Carnegie kind of figures out steel and Edison with electricity and Henry Ford with the assembly line. And JP Morgan creates the financial sector as we know it. So at the time, Rockefeller... Carnegie and J.P. Morgan were essentially the three gods of American money, and they they had brought wealth to the United States at the individual level like we hadn't seen. This is like Eastern China and Europe. That's This is old, noble wealth. They had essentially conquered the American system as it existed, and they were kings. They were basically kings, but they realized that With worker conditions, specifically like Johnston, the flood in Pennsylvania and the way that people are treated in factories and what they're just taking money from people, essentially just conquering all this like a game of literal monopoly, which is what the game is based off of. People were going to get mad, but the Internet didn't exist. There's no Twitter. You couldn't get a bunch of people. There's no populism infrastructure in place. So the only threat to their power was politics. So let's start talking about how they were going to defend their power. And that all starts with the presidential election of 1899 and 1900. President William McKinley was running. He was cool with them. They were cool with him. A know-it-all from Nebraska got in the way. He was essentially a a socialist and a a populist. He was a man of the people. William Jennings Bryant, they were freaked out by him. So they were like, McKinley has to be president.
0: Yeah. If the founding fathers were trying to overcome the challenges of throwing off the yoke of British tyranny and establishing the U.S. as a viable country, the challenge that Roosevelt faced was the big barons of industry, the standard oils of the world that essentially conquered the U.S. system, like you said. And so the political challenge was to maintain relevance in the face of just this overwhelming power of industry and these titans of acquiring capital that were able to exploit the lower classes for work however they wanted. And so naturally... When those people realized that politics was going to be their main persistent challenge for years, they tried to pay off as much as they could uh, politicians who were willing to advocate for them or in some cases not willing to advocate for their would-be adversaries like the lower classes and those who couldn't really afford to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. In the system that they were in
1: yeah so these guys essentially they they bought a presidential campaign and when there's no twitter and there's no facebook and you can't kind of push back against that you're susceptible to what they can do you can't do what they did anymore you can't just give your own money to someone it has to go through packs and that is all complicated crap which may or may not be rigged anyway but that's not for here or there what happened was these guys had more money than essentially the whole country combined they wanted that guy to be president it worked it paid off however they weren't just worried about national politics and their workers in various factories. They were worried about local politics. Now, around this time, this is when New York separated itself as the city that would become you know, our capital for industry and media and everything. So they were located in New York City, which is part of a much larger state. So the way to annoy them at the local level was through the state of New York. And at that time, there was an upstart governor who really liked the people. He kind of figured out the media... Everyone was kind of scared of him. He had a lot of stuff going on, and he could attack them at the knees at the local level. So they wanted to get rid of this guy, too.
0: Yeah. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt really first made a name for himself in politics as, as a young guy. Now, he was a really young president. We'll talk about that in a little bit more detail later. But he first established himself in New York State House, uh, what they call Tammany Hall, where he spent his younger days basically taking on the titans of the New York State political machine. He spent basically all of his boundless energy trying to make sure that the little people were advocated for and that the political machine of the day didn't just roll over people who were trying to make a living for themselves.
1: So he's Uh, going after essentially the people who don't want to be rolled over by the political machine, as you said. But when you're as powerful as Carnegie and Rockefeller and Morgan, you're like, this guy's super young. He's super popular. He's from a wealthy family. This he's going to reach for higher offices. If we can get rid of him right now, let's try to do that. Otherwise, we're going to keep having to play whack-a-mole with whoever's running for office. So if we defeat Williams Jenning, William Jennings Bryant, if I can say it correctly, then Roosevelt's just going to come right up. So let's go ahead and get rid of him. And they did that by, this is one of the most interesting tactics of all time because it goes all the way back to the beginning of the country. I think, uh, one of our favorite stands, John Adams, is like, the vice presidency is irrelevant. This is, sucks. Like, your life is over. Nothing happens. You're just essentially uh, a mascot, and you give speeches and whatever. So they're like, you know what, William? Pretty sure you're going to nominate Theodore Roosevelt to be your vice president.
0: Yeah, they, uh, they picked a really interesting strategy there, and they banked on nothing bad going to— nothing going not according to plan. Uh, turns out that was a terrible mistake, but— There's actually some clever game theory involved in that kind of decision. They basically did everything they could to try to make their adversary feel like he was advancing and developing his own career and getting into a position where he could enact his own goals and make his own alliances and exert his influence on the system later on while actually retaining really not very much power at all. Uh, you're absolutely right. John Adams, the one of the nation's most important founding fathers, the second president of the U.S., was vice president first. And all he did was complain about how irrelevant the system was. I think that's because he was prone to vanity, and he was obsessed with trying to do, do, do. I like to think of him as like the Leslie Nope of the founding fathers, where he was just constantly psyched about doing the boring stuff. But he uh, he complained about the vice presidency not having any... Real authority, and so these big barons think, well, if the vice pres, if the president barely has any authority because we've essentially bought him off, and the vice president definitely isn't going to be able to do anything to us. So the best way to neutralize this guy, rather than trying to defeat him outright, is to get him into a position that's really just a one-way dead end street.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as we mentioned in the open, this backfired in a huge way. I remember I love The West Wing, and um, this is a great great thing for America to perhaps watch right now people working together crazy how that could work there was a really interesting episode or a moment in an episode about how important it was to use the vice presidency the way that it's meant to be used and not just as a way to win an election as we've seen recently famously John McCain did that and it's a great tool on the campaign trail however in this episode of the West Wing uh the lead actor whose name I'm forgetting someone can point it out in the comments um what the hell is his name Sheen, Martin Sheen. When Martin Sheen writes down why you want the guy to be the vice president and not just someone who's going to score you political points, he writes down because I could die. Like we want the White House to be run by the person that we choose. If I die, that hasn't happened in a long time. However, back before there was a secret service, this was something that was possible. So Uh, On early September, a, a factory worker who'd been laid off and there were strikes and people were closed down. All of the stuff that Carnegie and Ford and Morgan and Rockefeller, all these guys are forcing these people to work in incredibly awful conditions. They're monopolies. There's no competition. They buy you. They ruin your life. The hostile takeovers were happening on Wall Street. Crazy. It was the Wild West of the economy. It was pure capitalism. So this guy, he was caught in the cog of this. He thought the government is in on this. Not only are these gods running our lives, but the government is allowing this to happen. He was dead right. So for years, he had become an anarchist. His name is Leon Chulgas. I think we pronounced that right. He was a son, of, I believe, of a Polish immigrant. He worked in the Rust Belt making stuff. I think it was a glass factory. And he got laid off and became an anarchist. He started to think that this is a problem. The government is the problem and like many, many, many people before him, a commoner throughout the annals of history, thought the king, the, the premier, the president is the problem. Let's kill him. And he did. On, I think it was September 6th, 1901, he shook the president's hand with his right hand. And usually you had to come up with the president with open hands. People around him needed to see your hands, but he just quickly shook his hand and popped him in the chest twice. Now McKinley, Credit to McKinley and his surgeons. He almost lived. It was close. Like, he was getting much better. Like, I don't know how that works, but he almost lived. But then the nightmare comes through. So you use the vice presidency to neuter probably the scariest threat that was coming down the pike at you. And you put him in the White House. You're like, we're done. If even even have, has any ideas of something that he could possibly do, his boss is going to say, don't do that. perfect plan. McKinley dies because one of the people that they had kind of exploited at the lowest levels of their company turned against them, and for the first time in history that I can think of, an assassination was justified, or it well, maybe not justified, but it certainly proved the point that the person wanted to make. He said, this is a problem. You're the reason. If I kill you, it'll get better. All of that was true, and it turned out that way.
0: Yeah, they I, I feel like we owe it to the folks listening to make something perfectly clear. We would never, ever advocate for any kind of assassination killing another person for any kind of reason is wrong in our opinion and we should never do it. We would never advocate for it. Now that said, use the word justified. I think in this case, I don't know if I would say it was justified, but I would say that Teddy Roosevelt was an infinitely better president than William McKinley. If for no other reason than I think he was just a better man. Sure. Now I, I want to also get a little bit more into sort of the political undercurrents that would motivate a lower class citizen to want to kill the president of the U.S. Uh, I think people get angry all the time. I think people take out grievances on the higher ups. Uh, I think that's not uncommon throughout any time or place in history. But at that time, the turn of the century, that was when things came into light about the American capitalist system that were really, really unfavorable and that really were kind of hidden from people who were kind of in the middle, upper class of US society who were well-to-do enough that they didn't really have to worry about the working conditions of workers. And that was also at a time in US history when immigration was just exploding. Uh, In the previous century, the world wasn't as interconnected as it was at the turn of the 19th into the 20th. And a lot of American society, especially in places like New York City, where political machines were running full steam ahead. Those places were increasingly full of immigrants. Uh, A lot of times from places in Europe where the English language isn't super common and the color of skin isn't necessarily the same as the red, white, and blue white bread Americans who have populated New York City and think they've made a good name for themselves and just disregard the Native Americans who had lived there for hundreds of years. And... remind me of the last name of this fellow Cholgas yeah Cholgas so Polish guy obviously comes from this same stock Uh, anybody who's been in a high school English class has probably read or is familiar with the classic muckraking novel Upton Sinclair's The Jungle that book tells the horrifying tale of a Lithuanian immigrant who works in the Chicago stockyards slaughtering cattle so that they can pack up meat to ship off to consumers who are none the wiser. I'll spare you the details of the book. Safe to say it's mortifying. It's truly horrific. And as I understand it, historically, those details are not too far off from the truth. But the interesting thing about Upton Sinclair's book in particular, as it relates to William Jennings Bryan and the political undercurrents opposing the capitalist giants of the day, is there's a definable moment in that book, where the narrative about Jurgis, the Lithuanian immigrant who works in the meatpacking plant, ends and just straight up socialist propaganda begins. And it's almost halfway through the book. Uh, The interesting thing about that isn't necessarily the details of what's in that propaganda, but the fact that a novel could become so popular for not only exposing something that's pretty embarrassing to American society, but that also openly advocates for a socialist system the fact that that could become popular had to be horrifying to the capitalist giants who were trying to shut down any kind of dissent, much less massive political movements that could gain momentum like socialism, and especially when they're represented by an actual political threat in somebody like William Jennings Bryan.
1: Yeah, um, is, well, William William Jennings Bryan was incredibly popular. Like, in my opinion, and I don't want to get into politics on this show, maybe one day, but. I don't think that there had been someone who created such a fever pitch of excitement on the campaign trail, frankly, until Donald Trump in 2016, where people were actively like a concert to go see William Jennings, Bryan speak. Cause they had been, you know, at their own dinner table saying we're peasants. Like we, this is, this is a surf system. There are company towns. Like we are not relevant human beings. And he said, I got you. And, you no know, Rockefeller's cut of the same bread. The only difference is that William Jennings Bryan was surviving strictly on socialism. So when these titans threw money behind McKinley, it was over. He could not compete with that kind of messaging. However, Roosevelt is a Roosevelt and he totally could have. So the the, the idea that it was just one-off guy and then there was a dude who wrote a book, like you said, like there's probably, people are marinating this propaganda. That can all be stamped out with money and just keeping things the way they are. But eventually that propaganda is going to convert the right person who's Ivy League educated, who has allies and who can make a point to not just the worker bees, but the people who are slightly above them in middle management to create a middle class, which is what Roosevelt thought we needed and what Roosevelt did. So I want to get into the decision to, to, the, to the discussion that we're having here, like regarding if we look at all of the assassinations in American history, and there have been a lot, all of them have made things so much worse that we're arguably still dealing with the consequences of almost every one of them. Like, I don't know if this is chronological, but for off the top of my head, all of the civil rights stuff, we think about Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Would really be great if those guys lived out their latter years. not going to lie to you. Also, RFK and JFK changed the history of the country. Those two assassinations, RFK, almost more heartbreaking for what the country went through than JFK, both of which are true. And all of that is a result of Lincoln's assassination which he did not get the opportunity to rebuild the South. It was set on fire. And now, yeah, relationships between people in the South are great, obviously. Things are totally fine now. Like, all of these assassinations are a freaking nightmare. And around the same time, 20 years after the McKinley assassination, Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. And that led to the deaths of hundreds of millions of people in war and famine and disease. There's no reason to go to that war and create a problem for Germany and Spain where they had to go to another war. Like, it was just people picking fights. Assassinations are awful. But this one turned out much better for every single person except for ten guys. So, what do we do?
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable how different the result of this assassination was from any of the others. Uh, I I think the prevalence of the threat. Well, so so we talk about the game theory of how smart is it really to try to neuter the most potent political opponent you have by putting him next in line to the presidency. Uh, Seems like a smart plan. The vice presidency at the time really wasn't a position of power. They had, had already bought off the president. Okay, seems like a pretty wily political move, but we just heard about several high profile assassinations in US history. And it makes me wonder whether these guys were really thinking clearly when they didn't count on the possibility of McKinley being assassinated. Uh, that's highlighted by a really interesting story that I personally didn't know about until we started doing research for this. And a friend of mine who's from Buffalo, where William McKinley was shot, tipped me off to an interesting tale of Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Todd. Have I told you about this guy? Hey, go ahead. Yeah, so this is absolutely fascinating. I'm drawing a lot of this information from uh, an article written by Todd Arrington, uh, who manages the site of the James A. Garfield National Historic Site, Uh, In 2014, he wrote this piece, and the National Park Service hosted it. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire thing. I'm not even going to summarize the entire thing. This will be
1: linked to in the show notes, of course.
0: Of course, linked in the show notes. Robert Todd Lincoln is perhaps most famous for being Abraham Lincoln's son and being closely tied to not one, but three U.S. presidential assassinations. It's fascinating. So obviously, his closest tie to the first presidential assassination was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, He was not there at Ford's Theater on the night of April 14th, 1865, when Lincoln was shot. But obviously, being somebody's son is about as close as you can get to that person. But then, on July 2nd, 1881, President Garfield was on his way to New England for a trip. Uh, There were some cabinet members that were expected to go along with him. Their wives were coming with, and they were all scheduled to leave on July 2nd. However, Robert Todd, who had finally been pressured into joining as the Secretary of War in Garfield's cabinet after opposing political involvement for a long time, he was going to come on the trip, but he couldn't make it until July 3rd. So he showed up at Washington, D.C.'s Baltimore and Potomac train station in order to meet with the president, and explain to him the Lincolns are going to be coming on July 3rd, the next day. So apparently... He was about 40 feet away, walking toward the president and secretary of state, James Blaine, when Charles Gateau approached from behind and shot Garfield twice. Lincoln said, quote, I think I reached him in 15 seconds. So he was there the day that President Garfield was assassinated in 1881. Newsflash. That's 20 years prior to McKinley's assassination, in terms of the memory of the US presidency, especially relative to an assassination, that's not a long time. And finally, Robert Todd's story isn't done. We said that he was closely tied to three presidential assassinations. I think a little bit of urban legend creeps into the third one, but it is true that William McKinley was shot in Buffalo. And that same day, Robert Todd Lincoln arrived in Buffalo. He was, he was actually considered something of a curse for political folks in the grand old party uh, and kind of not without reason. So this guy was involved or was closely tied to these three assassinations. Obviously, Lincoln's was among the most tragic assassinations in American history, world history, in, in my opinion. President Garfield, a little less clear on that one. Yeah. McKinley, kind of the opposite he was a lackey of the capitalist barons who were taking advantage of poor folks who couldn't make anything of them for themselves because they just had no way to accumulate wealth and try to build a better life for themselves. It just wasn't possible.
1: It's a Lincoln curse, huh? Yep. Unbelievable. Exactly. That is. Lincoln curse. The, uh, but, that, that is unbelievable. Ironically, Roosevelt was shot, though not assassinated.
0: Yeah, the, uh, year, years later. And I think the assassination highlights not only the difference in the political motivations of the people who tried to put Roosevelt in the vice presidency to keep him quiet, but it's also highlighted in the difference in the character of the two men of McKinley and Roosevelt. I mean these guys couldn't have been more opposites. So apparently in 1869, we 1896 rather, McKinley literally sat on his porch in Ohio to campaign for president. Meanwhile, Teddy Roosevelt had inexhaustible energy. I mean, I don't really think the man actually slept. He was constantly reading, writing, traveling, doing, meeting, speaking. He was always He like annoyed
1: his staff, right? Like they were annoyed oh, with
0: yeah. this. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine working for somebody who just never gets tired, always wants to do crazy stuff, and is the political opponent of the most powerful people in the country?
1: Right. So let's look at the let's look at what he did then by going there. And he didn't if I, I mean, I don't know as much about Roosevelt as you do, but I, I, feel confident in the trivia that he was never elected president of the United States ever, right?
0: Well, no, he was. So he was president until, uh, in, until 1908, uh, and at that time there were no term limits. You remember Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was president later during the Depression years and into World War II. Uh, he was president for a long time, five terms. So that really, uh, that, that precedent that Washington had set, well, that wasn't set in stone yet. Uh, and it later would become law. But Roosevelt, theoretically, could have run for president later in his career. Uh, He decided to leave in 1908. I think he's the only U.S. president who had a more interesting career after he was president, Uh, because after he was president, he went on all kinds of safaris and exploring trips, and he tried to broker peace uh, between competing world powers. Um, He had done a lot of that as president as well. I mean, ostensibly McKinley didn't have a very ambitious foreign policy because he kind of just wanted to keep things business as usual, let the barons be the barons, and kind of keep quiet. Meanwhile, Roosevelt did things like brokering peace between the empires of Japan and Russia in 1905, which set the stage for conflicts later on that would last well into the Cold War. Uh, He was just a titan on the world stage, and that's because he had so much energy, so much enthusiasm. His ambitions were sky high, but he was also just a good man and went about doing things the right way. He's a little vain, but how could you not be? Well, they're all, all be the they're all vain. All of them. Mm-hmm. is be known as the colonel.
1: They're all vain. All, every single one. So I also want to take a look at how this kind of changed how we view the vice presidency, because before that, as you mentioned, it wasn't exactly a fast track to the White House, but since then, it kind of has become that. So just off the top of my head, You have Roosevelt, who becomes president. Uh, Truman becomes president, who was re-elected. Like He was sworn in after the death of FDR. Then I think he was elected once. I don't remember. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Nixon, vice president of the United States. He -hmm. became president.
0: Al Gore was nearly vice president, if not for Chad down in Florida.
1: Correct. Gore, he won the popular vote. Uh, Also, LBJ was president. Bush. H.W. Bush was vice president of the United States under Reagan. He became president. And our current president of the United States was vice president before he took four years. Like He didn't run against Trump in 2016. He's elected president. And these are elections. Now it has become almost the best way to get experience and to see the country is to get famous not in your district as a senator or in your state as a governor. It is the vice presidency. And that kind of started with Roosevelt. We're like, this guy can, hey, he can do it. It's a and he's it, it. It particularly helps when he was more famous than the president in his his circles and people liked him more. I think was was part of the the issue as well. But I think that's a bit of a paradigm shift from how the country had gone before that. And I, I forget when the law changed, but originally, originally the the person who lost the presidency was forced to be vice president. And I mean that should have been done away when Adams and Jefferson wanted to kill each other.
0: Yeah, Adams and Jefferson are two of my most favorite historical. People uh, At the same time, they're my favorite historical bromance. Very complicated story, of course. There are a lot of highs and lows in that story. But uh, yeah, no, the vice president of the U.S. at its founding used to be the person who came in second for the presidential election. Uh, And I think they thought that would be a sort of a check on the power of the presidency. And it would make sure that the politics of one party didn't get too much sway. Uh, but then they realized that it just—it's just not workable when you have political adversaries going at each other in the highest executive office. Uh, and at the time, you know, the U.S. president wasn't always a celebrity figure. And Teddy Roosevelt had a lot to do with changing that. You know, it, it, it wasn't always the case that the president is the most important person in the free world. He—he he, he wasn't always supposed to be a, a person who is name-checked all the time in every story that happens at the national level. Uh, he was supposed to be, he or she was supposed to be the person who manages the offices of executing the laws that Congress passes and that the Supreme Court upholds. As John Adams, I think, typified the presidency's sort of uh, designed purpose, which is just administer, execute the laws, do what you need to do, but just keep quiet and run the country. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, with his celebrity, And with this high-profile assassination, uh, that sort of changed things. Lincoln had obviously made the presidency among the most respected offices ever designed by humans. Uh, But Roosevelt really took that to another level when he was kind of bringing to the fore this sort of new nationalism that defined American character, not just at home, but abroad as well, where he was laying the groundwork for America to become a major player on the global stage, uh, and not just in this hemisphere.
1: What's really interesting to me, and this is the last point I want to make, because I like, don't want to advocate on this side or that side of big government versus the economy, because the country was set up as a religious safe haven that Europe didn't exactly foster. But also, maybe more so, it was set up as an economic safe haven, where people in Europe, if you were born and you weren't born as, as nobility, like, you were kind of screwed. The system was set up for you. You couldn't make your own way. Like If you weren't a Medici or a Windsor... That just sucks. Like, there's nothing to say about it. You're just never going to get out from under that. So America was set up as a place where, theoretically, with hard work, luck, talent, whatever, you could become a Medici. And that is what happened. Vanderbilt quickly conquered it. And Morgan and Carnegie and all these people. However, when you see what what Roosevelt did, like, whether or not you broke the monopolies, he busted the trumps, He was, you know, or busted the trusts, excuse me. And... it kind of was the beginning of the end like they made rockefeller break up standard oil they made all of this legislation about this or that like well is that too much government i w- i would say that the fascinating part of this is that the ford family who was part of these people who built america henry ford they still own the detroit lions it's a billion billion dollar organization for nfl football team plus they still own ford motor motor company they still own hospitals huge huge company however the system that was put in place, even with the regulation that that uh, Roosevelt started, now we have Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, and the Fords are still around. They didn't completely redistribute the wealth. And if you're lucky and smart and it's timed up well, you can become Rockefeller or Sam Walton or any of these guys. That's what's most, most interesting thing to me is that he didn't, he didn't redistribute the wealth. He didn't turn this into a socialist thing the way that William Jennings Bryan wanted to. He just he dug the Panama Canal. That's a business decision that who doesn't benefit Americans doesn't benefit the worker. It benefits it benefits our economy, right? Well, so he I, didn't I, I think the Panama us.
0: Canal definitely did benefit Americans because it gave access to a lot faster and a lot cheaper shipping she, yeah, yeah, routes. Yeah, no, I understand that. American I'm saying
1: that he didn't. It didn't benefit. It didn't like give money from the rich to the poor. It wasn't the thing that William Jennings Bryan was saying. He made a business decision that benefits all of us get more goods, make more money, things are better. That's a business decision. That's a, that's promoting the American economy. He did not turn, eaten, was never on the same page as William Jennings Bryan with regard to socialism. He just made it not a death trap to work at a company.
0: Yeah, I think if I had to summarize Roosevelt's presidential philosophy in one phrase, it would be that he prioritized the collective good in a way that hadn't really been prioritized before. Because you can't really talk about Roosevelt's presidency without mentioning some of his other major accomplishments, like the national park system. He was the first U.S. president to come up with the concept of just preserving national land for the entire country to appreciate, not developing major developments on it, not extracting its resources, protecting land in a specific way just because it's intrinsically good. This space is beautiful. This space is important. We should preserve it. We can develop elsewhere. We can figure out how to regulate the way that businesses expand and run their companies and all that kind of stuff. But it's important to preserve good things. So he identified good things as good and acted accordingly. And yeah, that flew in the face of the business interests who wanted to just do whatever they wanted. Uh, political commentators like George Will, who, uh, who wrote extensively about how Roosevelt kind of rejected this provincial notion of self-governance. Uh, they kind of characterize it in a way that suggests that Roosevelt changed the presidency for the worse. Uh, because it is true that Roosevelt expanded the executive branch's powers more than any other U.S. president. And he kind of laid the groundwork for major executive orders that we would see like today. But that's not necessarily because he was trying to take over and redistribute wealth and take down the American enterprise system and make it into some kind of communist hellscape. It's because he believed that in this country there are good things, and people who deserve more access to those good things and it's important to prioritize that over the business interests of people who really don't need any more favors
1: right yeah and well because they conquered the system though you don't need to rig the system what's interesting about the documentary that spurred this conversation which is the six-part men who built america by the history channel which i'll link to the wikipedia page and perhaps the amazon if you want to buy the dvd set i don't know where it's being streamed i think you got to pay for it which is annoying but What's interesting about that is you find that these billionaires at the time, they were actually worth half a billion dollars, which would be worth like 50 billion now or something crazy. They start to donate their wealth. They realize like, what have I done? Like I have nothing, like I have family or whatever, but what is this? And Rockefeller and Carnegie had had a huge rivalry in their lifetime in business and Rockefeller got the best of him. And, but then in, you know, at the end, they realized that this is ridiculous. Like, and they started to try to out donate one another And that is an American tradition that I I think I would be most proud of if I were a billionaire. That, for the most part, I would say a lot of the mega wealthy billionaires in this country still follow the Rockefeller, Morgan, Carnegie tradition of like giving most of it away by a certain point in time. Not all of them. You see, Mackenzie Bezos, who didn't, I guess she wasn't an executive at Amazon or anything, and now her and Jeff are divorced. She's going to give away beyond, I believe, 99%. Over twenty or forty some billion dollars, and has already done so. So I think like they weren't; these titans weren't sociopaths, and by way of being evil, they just wanted to win the game. They just wanted more and more and more and more. And and Roosevelt changed that. This period in history, I think, without Roosevelt, without the assassination of William McKinley, I'm not sure that they do that. I think they just keep collecting their money, whether or not the, the trusts were going to be busted at some point. Could have been years later. Maybe he gets elected. Who knows? Maybe he gets elected. And I would say that in throughout history, specifically American history, all of those assassinations are awful. And I would rather him not be president at all and have all of those guys. But you can't, you know, butterfly effective history or whatever. The question is, like, was this, was this a worthy assassination or was it just a lucky assassination?
0: Yeah, that's... A really good question, and I think we still do see the effects of the established system that dominated at the turn of the century uh, today. Certainly in examples that you discussed, many others. Uh, one interesting uh, effect of the so-called uh, gospel of wealth that these uh, Carnegies and Rockefellers of the world uh, sort of took upon themselves once they became ultra-rich and could afford to give away ridiculous amounts of money. Uh, I bet more than half the people who listen to this podcast have seen or grew up in a town with a Carnegie Library. Uh, that includes us. Uh, the old Carnegie Library eventually turned into a courthouse administrative building for us out in Green River. But uh, it was there. And that was part of a nationwide effort by Carnegie to just create some public good out of his massive store of wealth. Could he have given more? Absolutely. But yeah, I I think it's, it's hard for me to imagine... That somebody with that much wealth and power, and who succeeded so mightily at the American capitalism game, would make such a decision, or do it with so much enthusiasm, had not a Roosevelt come into national prominence, uh, and that's because of the fortuitous uh, accident for him of somebody else's grisly murder.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It did. It, it did. Change. Like even the Rockefeller, Chris. You and I live in. We grew up in Wyoming, and. I think that they purchased the Teton County and what is Yellowstone sight unseen. They just bought it, and it turned out, and then they looked beautiful, and without without even thinking about it, they just gave it to the government. They're like, all right, we don't whatever, I don't care about this. Like, just buy some more stuff. So, like, I think that that attitude. I think you're right. I think that they that becoming American was not once you've got to the top of the mountain giving other Americans a shot at the mountain. I think that everybody wants to, it's sort of like the old, you know, quarterback wanting his backup to succeed, but when it's time to retire, it's very fascinating thing. And uh, I think, you know, this is, that moment in history is one that we don't spend enough time at, enough time on as children in this country because we, you gotta skip to World War II. There's a lot of important things to discuss there, but really fascinating goings on between 19, or 1896 and 1905 when all of this was happening.
0: Yeah, and I, I personally think that a lot of the reason we skip over that is because, you well, know, we do have a lot of history to learn. we got to learn about World War II and the Cold War and all that stuff. we got to learn about the founding. Uh, but the sort of middle period at the end of the 19th century, I think sometimes gets skipped over because it's not necessarily politically analogous to the way that we see the world today. And whether we like it or not, you know, we're we're human beings. We project our biases onto the things that we see and learn. And it's harder to interpret what was going on at that time through lenses of contemporary viewers today who are influenced by you know, just political leanings of the news sources that we discuss and you know the friendships that we form and things like that. Nick, sure. I want to take some time to close out this conversation with just a little bit more talking about how great Teddy Roosevelt is. And I'll make this quick and hit you with just some fast facts about why I like this guy. He was, I think, the greatest man to hold the office of presidency. That includes Lincoln, who is an all-time great human person, Washington, Jefferson, I think roosevelt was just truly in a league of his own so first of all as a youngster this man with boundless energy and tireless enthusiasm uh he was a weakling he's a frail kid he's really prone to bouts of asthma he lacked physical strength his parents were worried about him dying of consumption uh, and so they tried to take him on trips to europe and egypt and let him see the world uh turns out the roosevelts were really rich so i guess teddy making a lot of his life uh, is to be expected for somebody who was given so much so early on. But he was a weak, frail little kid, and he was really excited about nature. So he overcame that frailty of his youth to develop his love of the natural world. Then, later, he not only became a powerful political figure, he not only became a powerful military figure, he was also an accomplished author. He wrote a massive four-volume history of the U.S., called Winning of the West. It's some of the most important foundational work on the topic of how westward expansion of the United States into unclaimed, AKA owned by Native Americans territory. Roosevelt was a war hero. He fought with the US volunteer cavalry in Cuba. Uh, He was involved in the Spanish American war that broke out in 1898. He saw himself as a mighty hero uh, with a company of the Rough Riders And he thought a lot more highly of himself than probably was the case. But nonetheless, he had boundless courage. We talked about his environmentalism. We talked about how he liked to charm the press. He helped save American football. In the early 1900s, football was more dangerous than it is today. Punching and kicking and biting used to be legal under the rules. Uh, In 1900 and 1905, roughly 45 players in college football died as a result of playing the game. And so Roosevelt summoned the courage to establish a governing board which would later become the ncaa or better or worse yeah. and regulate the game of football so that it could be played safely in fact this man believed that the two best ways to prepare young boys into becoming young men were to go to war and play football and for a man who was frail and weak and had to overcome those physical barriers in his life to advocate for that kind of stuff uh is pretty remarkable finally after his presidency He went on safari, he shot big game in Africa, although he was helped out a little bit sometimes, he overcame that. He helped map uncharted river territory deep in the Amazon jungle. Uh, This man was unstoppable. And finally, he tried to run for president again in 1912, but he was so tired of the political machine that the grand old party had become, he formed his own third party, the Bull Moose Party, which, sorry libertarians, is still the most influential third party in US history. He didn't win the presidency, but while he was campaigning, he was shot in the middle of a speech. Probably hit a copy of the speech that he had in his breast pocket, but his response was, I've just been shot. It takes a lot more than that to take down a bull moose, and he finished the speech. This man was indestructible, and luckily for him, I guess, his predecessor was not so immune to the lead virus.
1: So how do you feel about Roosevelt? Not bad. And Roosevelt's great. Yeah. They should
0: build a Mount Rushmore just of him. We should times. find
1: a way to commemorate him. Yeah, I agree. Yeah.